I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on daily life, so that together you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. Have you ever felt like you're just missing something? Like something's right in front of your face, but somehow you're not getting it. Whether you've misplaced your keys or some other valuable item, or you're staring at that book, you know the one, Where's Waldo? Or you're trying to find this stripe-wearing, bespectacled pilgrim wandering through this page of busy activity. And you know he's in there somewhere, but you can't quite pin it down. Well, the Mass is a lot like that. And I know you're not, you're not so sure, but I really think the Mass is like, where's Waldo? Because there's so many external things that are going on that sometimes we miss the very simplest thing right in the middle. There's so many activities and actions that are taking place that it's easy to get caught up in in what we see and hear and smell and taste and miss the deeper spiritual realities. Now, all of those things are on purpose. We have those things that we see and taste and smell within the Mass to incorporate the whole of our senses because each of those things are supposed to be signposts. They're supposed to be sacraments that draw us into some deeper reality. But it's easy to miss. And if you miss it, you're not alone. The great angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, towards the end of his life after writing volumes and volumes of theology and, and wonderful deep stuff that the church still clings to and uses, even after these profound insights, at the end of his life, he had an encounter, a mystical encounter with the Eucharist that ruined him for this world. And he said, everything that I've done to this point is as straw. It's rubbish. It's nothing in compare to what I have experienced now. And so if the angelic doctor who the church holds in the highest esteem, if he could experience something and have missed something all those years, how much more could you and I, who are busy finding lost socks and shoes for our children and trying to make sure that they don't kill each other on the way to Mass. You know, you know, sitting in the car, make sure that we don't have a fight, that we have to spend a little bit extra time at the passing of the peace. Okay, you two make peace. How much easier is it for you and I to miss something profound and deep? We go to Mass every week, and if you do, fantastic. If you do, then you are putting yourself in the place where you can most receive from God. You're putting yourself in the very place where you can counter those those misperceptions that we have, where you can overcome that thing that you're missing. And yet, being there isn't enough. I know, I know you're doing everything you can to get there, and it's good. But being there just to be there isn't enough. We have to come now into the Mass expecting to meet Christ in a very real way, not in the, oh, well, we go every week and we receive the Eucharist and then we go home and I feel a little better throughout the week. No, we're going to meet Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in a very, in, in the same way that the, the apostles that walked with him to Emmaus experienced him as he broke the bread and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. 
right? That's the point that they're like, oh, it's Jesus. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And we have that same experience. We have that same opportunity through the, the insight of the Holy Spirit, through that, that wisdom granted to us by virtue of our baptism and our confirmation, we have the ability to meet Christ and to recognize him in the breaking of the bread. But it's hard. It's hard because life is busy and distracting and everything in this world is, is lined up to make it hard for us. So what do we do to make Mass mean something more to us? What do we do to encounter Christ in a more substantial way when we approach him to receive him at communion? Well, today we're going to be talking with Christopher Karstens, and he's going to talk to us about that very thing. He's got a brand new book available on a Sophia Institute Press called A Devotional Journey into the Mass. How Mass Can Become a Time of Grace, Nourishment, and Devotion. And, you know, there are lots of books out there that are dealing with this topic of the Mass. We're going to be approaching a few of them throughout this Easter season. But this one I love because of it is exactly what the title says. It's a devotional journey. This is not so much about conveying information in an academic kind of way. This is a person who wants to take you on a spiritual retreat using the Mass. And so it's very, it feels very much, as you read it, like Jesus speaking in parables to those who came to listen. And so he's going to use things that are everyday, easy things to hear and understand and appropriate, and then tie those back to the Mass so that we can get a little bit clearer picture of that. And perhaps the most important thing that our conversation today is going to accomplish, uh, and that this book will accomplish, is to get us out of the mindset of looking at the Mass through our normal eyes, through the eyes of whether it be habit or the eyes of uh, personal experience or the eyes of really even the physical realm. But it's going to give us new eyes. It's going to maybe kind of like an eye exam when you go to the doctor and they put out the eye chart and help you see things a little bit more clearly. That's what he's going to do with this as he uh, strengthens the eyes of your heart to begin to understand and to to grasp and to see clearly those things that the Mass is calling us into. And even more specifically, those things that the Mass is geared to transform us into. Because the Mass is not just this thing that we participate in. The Mass is something that through which, through our participation in the Mass, Christ, through the Holy Spirit, transforms us more and more into His likeness. It's going to be a great conversation with Christopher Carsons right after this. Don't go anywhere unless you're going to go over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls. Talk to me about your experience of the mass. And while you're on social media, make sure that your friends know that this conversation is coming up right after the break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to outside the walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and the implications of our faith on daily life. 
I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Hallelujah, hallelujah, here we are. We can say that word again. We're right now in the very beginning and still in the early side of the, the season of Easter. Easter is not a day. And this Easter season here on Outside the Walls, we're taking the time to explore the Mass a little bit more thoroughly, maybe give us some insight that we didn't have previously. And so today we're talking to with Chris Karstens. He's the director of the Office of Sacred Worship in the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. He's also an instructor at Mundelein's Liturgical Institute. Uh, and he uh, he's kind of used to this talking on air. He's a voice on the Liturgy Guys podcast, one of my favorites. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Timothy, very much. Happy Easter to you. Now, when I was uh, in the aspirancy for the diaconate, you came and you talked to to my class, and we talked about the Mass a little bit, and you brought up something there that I thought was fascinating, uh, and which we'll get to a little bit later in the show, but this idea of what it means when we say, uh, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, uh, and, and that it's not only his sacrifice, but that we have a share in that sacrifice as well. And this is something that you've explored in a book that you've just written, available on Sophia Institute Press, called A Devotional Journey into the Mass, How Mass Can Become a Time of Grace, Nourishment, and Devotion. So I'm really interested in the way that you've gone about this book, because you sit down with it, and it's almost as if you're sitting down with a family member and looking through the old photo book, and you're reminiscing on these passages from the Old Testament, or you're reminiscing on an idea or a common experience that we all have, and then you tie it back into the Mass in a way that kind of expands our minds and our understanding a little bit. So talk to me about the the genesis of this book. Uh, what what brought you to the place where you're sa- you said, yeah, now is the time to write it? Uh, and what is your hope uh in the publishing of this book and that a reader will take away from it. Sure. There's a couple of streams that came together to make this uh, book uh, possible. The one is it's the the fruit of all the great stuff I get to do uh, in my job as Dawson liturgy director and teacher at the Institute or in different formation programs. So yeah, Timothy, some of this will be uh, uh, not news to you. Uh, But so this is what I get to do is to help people how to pray, help people not just understand the mass in an academic or uh, heady sort of way, but really to pray it. Uh, so it's the fruit of doing that for, for many years, but also as, as my kids now who range from age 16 down to two, you know, how do we teach them as their father, how to, how to pray so that, uh, they stay Catholic and that they, they, they attend mass and they become holy, that they receive the graces as fruitfully as, as they can. So that's the genesis of the book, those, those couple of things. What I hope that uh, readers can, can get from it is a lot of what I myself have learned from, from the Mass, and that's how, how to see it in a way that's, that's more clear and to pray it in a way that's more fruitful. You know, if we're going to spend 60 minutes a week um, on a Sunday morning, it, uh, it ought to be that, that hour's worth of energy for the rest of the week that lies ahead. So how can we transform the Mass that's there into a real powerhouse of grace for us? Let's explore this a little bit because let me just unpack a scenario that's probably familiar to a lot of the parents out there. Uh, you you wake up maybe on time, uh, and now you've got to wrangle uh, however many children you have into uncomfortable clothes, 
and keep them clean throughout breakfast and then put them in the car after, of course, you, you spend 10 minutes trying to find shoes. Uh, because oh, the, because shoes. the shoes, <laughs> you put them out the night before and somehow if they have both shoes, they're missing a sock. So you, uh -huh. you wrestle through this, you get them in the car, you're all wired up uh, and maybe you have a quiet ride. We've, we've kind of instituted that as a family, but I hear from others that the ride is a little bit stressful and then you get in and you sit down and you spend most of the mass trying to keep the child facing the right direction uh, and not screaming. So how do we take that experience of what we in our natural eyes see and expect from the mass and take it now to yeah, well, an interior level to pray the mass? Yeah, well, here, here's some of the things that, that we try in our family, which is by no means exceptional. Uh, you, on, our, on our way to church, or even I, you know, I suppose we should back up a little bit. Even before Sunday morning rolls around, if we do some things in the home, uh, this can be helpful for us. And one is uh, reading the readings, the Sunday gospel, especially for the week ahead. And this is something the whole family can do from the older kids to the younger kids and do a little reflection on the readings, meditation on the readings, just becoming familiar with the readings. And you can ask a, a five-year-old, you know, what, what he or she hears in the reading. And so already the kid is getting, uh, and the adult, frankly, is getting uh, attached to the mass that's uh, about to start. You know, then you get in the car, and like you, Timothy, we, we, we keep the radio off, and we start to ask each other, uh, hey, so who, who are you going to pray for in Mass today? What do you want to say to Jesus today? Um, what do you want to listen for in the reading that we've been hearing today? Then you get to Mass, and one of the things we talk about in the book is going through the front door, because Jesus says, I am the door, and that door is really a passageway into heaven, is a passageway into the temple which is Christ's body. So even though our parking lot is over on the side of the church, we all walk around, we, we pass the side door, we all walk around to the front door, and the kids notice this, and they might not get all of the theological depth out of it, but they're starting to become attached. During the offertory prayer, we'll ask uh, the five-year-olds, you know, we'll say, okay, now it's time to, because to, Father's going to say, pray that my sacrifice and yours be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And so we say, okay, what do you want to pray for in this Mass? What's in your heart? And then they take their hand to their heart, and they just throw it up onto the altar. And so with these little ways, all of a sudden the kids are getting more and more engaged in the Mass. Um, Maybe not as deeply as we hope someday, but their attention is directly associated with the Mass. So these little things help slowly, but they help. Mm -hmm. We're talking today with Chris Carstens. He's the director of the Office for Sacred Worship in the Diocese of La Crosse. And so I, as I think about attending Mass myself, there are times where we go through that uh, confession at the very beginning. I confess to Almighty God, to you, my brothers and sisters. And then we're feeling pretty good. And I'm so grateful personally that right before we go up to receive communion, we reiterate, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof because I have to remind myself I've done stuff since that confession at the beginning of Mass in my own heart and in my attitudes towards maybe correcting the children or maybe a little bit of grumbling or maybe inattentiveness that I need to recenter myself again at this point. <laughs> Uh, but you, you spend a lot of time in here, specifically, uh, something I wanted to point out was even early on in how to pray the opening prayer. You're talking about the, the priest is praying this collect, but in the process, 
he's offering not only this this prayer written for the whole church, but he's offering the prayers of our own hearts. So talk about how we can maybe spend some time identifying those things we want to offer in prayer to make our experience in Mass more than just sitting and receiving and singing, but participating at a heart level. Sure. I think that opening prayer is one of the most overlooked elements of the Mass. I don't know how many times I've said amen to the end of that prayer, and I just I couldn't tell you the first thing that that prayer talked about. Mm-hmm. So how is it that we can pray it? Well, there's a couple of things that come together. And the first is, is to realize that when we, when we pray that, when, when the priest says, let us pray, it's no, you don't have to look up or have any great theological insight to understand what he means. He means, let us pray. And what everybody should do in the church is actually bring to mind uh, an intention or two or three or four, anything that you want to offer over to God. Again, a five-year-old can do this. A 45-year-old person can do this. So the priest says, let us pray. And imagine if you had 300 people in that church building all moving forward, these intentions uh, that they had. And what the priest does, you mentioned this, the opening prayer, one of the ter- words for it is called the collect. And it's spelled just like collect. And it, I think that's what it means is the priest gathers up. He collects all of these little individual intentions and in one voice, he gives, he gives voice to them in this opening prayer. And so if, when we hear the priest say, let us pray, and then there's this period of silence, and we bring forward these intentions, we add them, I add mine to yours, and you and I add ours to hers, and the priest takes them, and he offers them to God the Father. And so this is, this is what um, God wants out of us, is our prayers uh, given over to him. So even the opening prayer can be... Uh, become just what it's supposed to be, namely a type of prayer. But we have to be intentional and mindful and conscious and pay attention to make this happen. You know, I I get the idea that a lot of times we're in Mass with the eyes uh, of our head and not necessarily the eyes of our heart. And we're, we hear, let us pray, and we hear a moment of silence, and we look up to say, well, maybe the altar boy is taking too long to get the, the book over. You know, why is it taking so long? Rather than taking a moment and actually entering into that silence and saying, oh, I have a moment to, to follow those instructions and, and to pray for myself. Uh, and, and so it's so easy to get caught up in the physicality of the Mass and completely miss, I think, the sacramentality of the Mass. Right. There's a, you know, a sacrament is an outward sign, but it brings with it this inward reality. And if we're just singing with our natural physical senses, then we're, we're missing the, the real thing that's there. We're missing most of the picture. And so we have to look and listen and taste and touch and smell in a little bit different way when we come to the Mass and realize that beneath these external words and people, investments and doors and days and whatnot is a reality. And it's only when we can kind of penetrate through that sacramental skin that we can start to see what's truly there. In here, you also even talk about how to make the sign of the cross. And of course, we're teaching the, the little kids this right now, down all the way to uh, the two-year-old kind of taps his head a couple of times when we pray at the beginning of Mass, because that's what you do. Um, but you're bringing into it almost uh, an idea of alorica, this this prayer of vesting, of really saying, okay, I need a little bit extra oomph to make it through life, and here I am in this special place. I'm going to put on this sign of the cross. I'm going to take up my cross in the midst of this and now participate a little bit more fully. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, again, just like the other signs, the sign of the cross has a whole lot of substantial meaning if we look beneath the surface a little bit. And, you know, taking up uh, the cross, of course, is what Jesus did. And when we when we make this sign of the cross on ourselves, we are in a in a bodily way, not just a spiritual way, but a kind of a holistic way responding to his command to take up your cross. But there's a number of uh, on what we would call Old Testament types or prefigurements or foreshadowings that give some more meaning to the cross. And uh, one that comes to mind, uh, that came to my mind as you were speaking just now, is when the chosen people are traveling across the desert on the way to the Promised Land and Joshua engages the Amalekites, I think it is, in battle. And so what Moses does is he goes up to the top of this hill and he, he stands atop the hill and he extends his arms. Now, if you were down below and you looked up, you just you could almost imagine this ca- uh, cal- cavalry, cavalry, excuse me, uh, with a cross up there, uh, a man standing in the shape of a cross. Yeah. And as long as Moses is standing like that, uh, Joshua and the people are successful. But you recall he gets tired and his arms start to, to slouch a little bit. And when that sign of the cross goes away, they get defeated. And so uh, Aaron and somebody else, they hold up his arms. And we should be reminded that when we make that sign of the cross, that it's beneath this sign that we too will reach the promised land successfully and will be protected in the battle as we make our journey. We're talking today with Chris Karstens, author of a new book, A Devotional Journey into the Mass, available on Sophia Institute Press. Join the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and the implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. We're taking this Easter season to talk about the Mass, to get a maybe a little clearer idea of what it is we're participating in. And Second Vatican Council, one of the things it called for is for active, full and active participation in the Mass. And a lot of times we think of that in the external realities of making sure that we've got enough uh, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion or lectors or, or whatever the case is. And yet there's much more to it than that because we all, each one of us, you and I, need to participate in an interior way uh, to, to the whole of the Mass, to participate in the sacrifice, to participate in this worship of God, uh, not just in terms of singing the hymn at the right time, but in in the offering of our own heart and our own intentions. And today, to explore that a little bit more fully, we're talking with Chris Karstens. Chris, thank you for being on the show. Sure. Thanks, Timothy. So one of the things that you brought up uh, in in the lecture that I heard uh, a few years ago now, and you bring up in this book as well, which I think is probably the, the heart of the experience, and there's steps to get up to this place, but is realizing that at the offering of the gifts, after we put our uh, check in the offering plate, after the uh, one of the families that's been chosen from the beginning uh, of the Mass, they take up the, the hosts, the unconsecrated hosts and the wine. Now there's another offering that needs to take place at that same time, and that's my concerns and my, my prayers and my adoration. How do we get to the place 
now where we maybe even before we get into mass, where we identify those things that we really need to offer to God rather than just trying to figure it out right in that moment. Yeah. Maybe uh, let me go back to how you introduced this uh, segment too, talking about active participation. And this will be an insight to what's going to happen at the offertory. Uh, it was Pius X in 1903 that first used this term active participation on behalf of uh, the church. And he certainly didn't mean it to be serving as the lector or an altar server or anything uh, like that. What he meant was to to actively join ourselves to the saving work of Jesus made present at the Mass. And this saving work is uh, principally his Paschal offering, the offering of himself at Mass. Well, if that's what active participation means, we are really starting to get to the heart of it at the uh, at the offertory. And as you say, I mean, what what the offertory really is all about is getting from your pew onto the altar, getting from your place in the nave almost into the chalice or onto the paten, uh, because this is the sacrifice that God uh, really wants. You know, this, this all-powerful God that we have can take everything from us, you know, our, our, our bodies, our minds, our families, our jobs, our cars, everything. But there's one thing that he cannot have. The only way he's going to get it is if we freely give it to him. So, of course, uh, this is the one thing he wants, and that's our love, our will, uh, our hearts. And so with the offertory, uh, the preparation of the altar, and the gifts is to prepare our hearts for sacrifice. And so, as I mentioned in the first part, you know, we, we, we have, we, we, we try to pray throughout the week, the morning offering, which there's different versions, but it says, uh, Oh, Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day in union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world. And so we try to pray this during the week, and then we try to bring these to mind either on the way to Mass or you know, before Mass, where there's that little bit of quiet time before Mass begins. Okay, who are you going to pray for? What are you going to give to Jesus? What are you going to put in that chalice? And then when the priest or the deacon is preparing the gifts, you know, the the wine is poured in the chalice, and a little bit of water is added in. And one of the interpretations of this is that the wine represents Jesus and his divinity, and the water is ourselves being joined to that. So we pour our hearts into that chalice, and then through the hands of the priest, those will be uh, transformed, transubstantiated, uh, given to God the Father. And so we become transformed and divinized ourselves if we can do this type of uh, action. And again, Timothy, I just, as I said before, I mean, we, we try this with five-year-olds, with seven-year-olds, with 12-year-olds, and it's not, um, you don't have to have a theology degree to do these types of things. You just have to have a little bit of uh, understanding and then be especially attentive when that part of the Mass comes around. Now, this is, you brought something up there that I want to maybe explore a little bit more fully, because I don't think that, uh, at least in our Western culture, that we really understand it very well. And that's the, the topic of divinization, the fact that what does it look like for us to share in the divine nature of God, just as he came and shared in our nature? And how is it that our participation in the Mass helps us be divinized as we're purified and made holy? Oh, yeah, this is... Uh, um this is a difficult question, but uh, it's, it's the question. Mm-hmm. This is, what a saint is, is somebody 
who is who thinks like Jesus, loves like Jesus, acts like Jesus for the same motives that Jesus it is. As someone who's who's divine. Uh, there's the saying by Saint Irenaeus, I believe, God became man so that man might become God. And even uh, way back in the garden, you know, the Catechism will say if you if you get the if you get original sin wrong, you're going to get uh, redemption wrong. Right. That uh, you can't understand the good news if you don't understand the nature of the bad news. And what the Catechism, at least, will say about the original sin, uh, it w- was not that they wanted to be like God, because being like God is what we're called to do. In fact, we were made in God's likeness. Uh, the first sin consisted of wanting to be like God, but without him and according to their own plan. So first of all, I think realizing that being divinized, being godlike, is what we were made to be. This is what a saint is, and this is what the Mass can do for us. You know, one of the uh, one of the earliest subtitles of this book was "From Donuts to Divinization," because uh, my my five year old said he likes going to mass because of the donuts we get to eat after. But I hope when he's twenty five, he says, "I like going to mass because this is where I become divinized." And so, you know, through the sacraments, through grace, uh, we become true reflections of Jesus. Uh, and in fact, you know, if we go back to this uh, mixing of the water and the wine in the chalice, the prayer is something like, through the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. This is what's called this marvelous or glorious exchange that I think this phrase seems to be coined by St. Augustine, and it appears all the time in the Advent and Christmas seasons. But, you know, this is, uh, this is really what Mass is uh, about, is making us to become like God. We're talking today with Chris Karstens, author of the new book, A Devotional Journey into the Mass. And uh, you're talking about transformation, and transformation can only occur I mean, we can go to Mass, we can receive the Eucharist uh, as well as we are disposed to receive it. We can listen to all the readings. But until the point comes where we humble ourselves and recognize that there are places in our life that need to be transformed and offer those to God upon the altar and say, okay, I'm going to give you my short temper, God. Now I ask for you to give me your nature. Until we Mm. can bring ourselves in humility and docility, that transformation can't happen Right, and that's, um, I don't know, if, if you're like me, or I suppose if you're like any uh, human being, humility and docility are, are hard virtues uh, to cultivate and to come by. Um, but yeah, you know, grace isn't magic. It won't come over you like a spell and transform you, you know, into St. Augustine or, you know, your, your daughters into Therese of Lisieux or whatever it is. Uh, Jesus cannot save us against our will. Uh, it, it, in some way, even some small way, we need to uh, to consent to be transformed by the power of God. Otherwise, it it just doesn't work. And this is the, you know, you mentioned that prayer of the centurion before communion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. I mean, this uh, centurion in Capernaum uh, was a very powerful and lofty man. I mean, he, he belonged to, he was a Roman citizen. They were the victors and he commanded a hundred men. He was certainly more powerful than a, a vanquished carpenter from, uh, uh, Nazareth, at least on the surface. And so this, this very powerful man, uh, 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 puts forward his own humility and, 
Jesus is amazed, it says in the, in the passage. He's amazed to find the humility among this person. And so uh, this, his humility should be our humility, too. And when we can do that, then God will do great things for us and in us. You know, and sometimes you may have a part in your life that the Holy Spirit's kind of nudging on, and you really don't want to give that up. You know, it is, a, I think, a perfectly acceptable prayer, uh, just like in the book of Luke, where, um, where the person brings forth the Son and says, all is possible for those who believe. And he says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Sometimes mm-hmm. all we can muster is to say, you know, I don't like this part of me. And I want it to be transformed, and yet it's really hard for me to give it up, give it up. So, so help me to want to be humble. Yeah, one of the things we recommend in the book, and this is something I learned from writing the book, is this prayer of Saint Ignatius uh, called the Sushipe, which is receive, Lord, my entire freedom, my memory, my intellect, my will, all that I have or possess, I give it to you. And so I pray that when I get back to the pew. Uh, you know, I'd be lying though if I said I mean that 100% every single time. But I'm going to work on it. I'm going to pray it this week and next week and next week and next week. And I gradually, uh, I I hope that I will come to mean that 110%. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that's the nature of certainly the liturgy in our life of prayer. That it's it's a little by little very often. It's not like. For most of us, it's not like St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Right. It's very small steps that uh, gradually transform us. So in the little time we have left, let's talk about we've received the Eucharist, and now we go back to the pew as we're waiting for the other people to cycle through the line and we're waiting for the exit. Uh, when I came into the church as a, as a new convert, I knew that I was supposed to offer some prayer there, but I didn't know what it was supposed to look like. So what does it look like? What do you pray when you return to your pew after you've received communion? Yeah, well, again, it can look any way you want it to. So uh, when, we, when we pray collectively in the liturgy, you know, there's, certain, there's a certain formality of prayer, and the nature of the prayer has, has to apply to everybody in there. But when we're praying you know, in our hearts to Jesus when we get back to our seats, that can be as individual as, uh, as the person praying it. This one uh, beautiful little anecdote uh, that I read once in um, it was a Teresa of Avila book about this little girl. She got back and she said her ABCs twice to Jesus, and she thanked Jesus for her mom and dad and brother, and then told him a little ghost story. <laughs> and you know, great, that is great. Um, why not? But say something. Say something to Jesus. Converse with Jesus once you get back. And this is a, a great and beautiful time for some real heart-to-heart communion with, uh, with, us, with us and God. Mm-hmm. We've been talking today with Chris Karstens. He's the director of the Office of Sacred Worship in the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. He's an instructor at Mundelein's Liturgical Institute, editor of the Adoramus Bulletin. And if you can't get enough... Well, go subscribe to the Liturgy Guys podcast, and he is a voice there as well. You'll get to hear more insight about liturgy and about the Mass. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thanks for having me, Timothy. There's more to this conversation with Chris Carstens, author of the new book, A Devotional Journey into the Mass, available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join that community. Get all kinds of extra content for as little as $5 a month. Join the ongoing conversation over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls or Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls, and talk to me about your experience of the Mass. There's much more to come right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today, we're continuing our conversation about the Mass, as we are focusing on the Mass throughout the season of Easter. Uh, And really, every Sunday throughout the entire year, we are celebrating the Paschal Mystery. That's the mystery of the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every time we go to Mass, and we talk about it in the memorial acclamation, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again, right? So every Mass is a focusing on this this thing that we've just come out of through Lent and Holy Week and then Easter, Uh, and it's kind of condensed into our Sunday that's why Sundays are never penitential, because they are always uh, reflecting on Easter. Today, we were talking with Chris Karstens, who's the director of the Office of Sacred Worship in the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. He's an instructor at Mundelein's Liturgical Institute and a voice on the Liturgy Guys podcast. And we were talking to him about his new book, A Devotional Journey into the Mass, How Mass Can Become a Time of Grace, Nourishment, and Devotion, that's available right now on Sophia Institute Press, sophiainstitute.com. If you missed any part of that conversation, have no fear. You can go to outsidethewalls.com, and the archive is right there. You can listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. But there's even more to my conversation with Chris available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to outsidethewalls.com, click the Support the Show Patreon link, and for as little as $5 a month, you get access to, uh, to goodies, to extras that don't appear on the broadcast, including extra segments with our guests each and every week. Uh, go take a look, OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link and see what you're missing. Join the numbers of those who support the work we do here at Outside the Walls. Let's turn our attention now to our reading from Scripture and from a document of the Church. We're pulling both of these out of the breviary today. Normally, we pull our readings from the Mass readings uh, but this, I think, fits a little bit better with where we're, where we're going this Easter season as we're talking about the Mass. And this reading comes from the book of Revelation. In the right hand of the one who sat on the throne, I, John, saw a scroll. It had writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a mighty angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could be found to open the scroll or examine its contents. I wept bitterly, because no one could be found worthy to open or examine the scroll. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the right by his victory to open the scroll with the seven seals. Then, between the throne and the four living creatures, And the elders, I saw a lamb standing, a lamb that had been slain. He had seven horns and seven eyes. These eyes are the seven spirits of God sent to all parts of the world. The lamb came and received the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Along with their harps, the elders were holding vessels of gold filled with aromatic spices which were the prayers of God's holy people. This is the new hymn they sang. Worthy are you to receive the scroll and break open its seals, for you were slain. With your blood you purchased for God men of every race and tongue, of every people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
As my vision continued, I heard the voices of many angels who surrounded the throne and the living creatures and elders. They were countless in number, thousands and tens of thousands, and they all cried out, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and praise. Then I heard the voices of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Everything in the universe cried aloud to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor, glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures answered, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That reading comes from the book of Revelation, and you may be thinking, why why are we talking about this when we're talking about the Mass? Well, you may have heard of it, and if you haven't, you need to hear of it. There's a book by Scott Hahn called The Lamb's Supper. Uh, this was one of the things that I, I heard before I even became Catholic, one of the things that maybe helped me in my progression towards being Catholic. Uh, I, I visited my cousin's parish, he was a priest, and he had... Scott Hahn coming and talking, giving this talk on the Lamb's Supper right about the time that the book was being released. And the correlation to the Mass and to the book of Revelation is uncanny. And the way he described it in, in his lecture and again in the book is that, um, that John, who is in exile and unable to attend the Mass with those in his community who, who he had shepherded and loved, uh, since he was in exile, God brought him into the heavens in a vision where he saw this mass, this heavenly worship taking place uh, in its reality. That which the mass is a mirror of, that which it is a shadow of, uh, he saw in its reality in his vision and gave to us in this book of Revelation. And here we see this, this triumphant lamb who is slain now standing who is able to accomplish all that needs to be accomplished. And we have this in Christ who gave himself up for us. He is that lamb who was slain. He is this one who all of the elders and all of the saints cry out is worthy. And we do the same thing in the mass. And, you know, sometimes we get into mass and we're like, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts. You know, we just kind of go along with it and we try to do the cadence with everyone else. And it's good to stay on the same cadence and track with everyone else. But, but that should fill us with such awe that here is the lamb who is slain. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And for us to really grapple with what it means for us to say out loud, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. What exactly does that mean? Have we taken the time to appropriate even the words that we're saying at Mass? Have we taken the time to, to really understand what we are declaring as a community of, of faithful, as, as we are standing in worship of God? Take the time before Mass this week, sometime today, and Spend some time in prayer and ask for a, a deeper understanding. Ask for the Holy Spirit to give you a deeper understanding of what's really being accomplished as we're sitting and participating in the Mass. And it may not happen today, and, and it may not be huge, but just the whole idea of telling God that we're ready, at least to be made ready, to receive some understanding like St. Thomas Aquinas had 
that will fill us with such awe that we'll never look at the Mass the same again. Our reading from the document of the Church comes from Sacrosanctum Concilium, a document of the Second Vatican Council. In God's desire, in his desire that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, God spoke in former times to our forefathers through the prophets on many occasions and in different ways. Then in the fullness of time he sent his Son, the Word made man, anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring the good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted as the physician of body and spirit and the mediator between God and men. In the unity of the person of the Word, his human nature was the instrument of our salvation. Thus, in Christ, there has come to be the perfect atonement that reconciles us with God, and we have been given the power to offer the fullness of divine worship. This work of man's redemption and God's perfect glory was foreshadowed by God's mighty deeds among the people of the Old Covenant. It was brought to fulfillment by Christ the Lord, especially through the Paschal mystery of his blessed passion, resurrection from the dead, and ascension in glory. By dying, he destroyed our death, and by rising again, he restored our life. From his side, as he lay asleep on the cross, was born that wonderful sacrament, which is the church in its entirety. As Christ was sent by the Father, so in his turn he sent the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit. They were sent to preach the gospel to every creature, proclaiming that we had been set free from the power of Satan and from death by the death and resurrection of God's Son and brought into the kingdom of the Father. They were sent also to bring into effect this saving work that they proclaimed by means of the sacrifice and sacraments that are the pivot of the whole life of the liturgy. So by baptism, men are brought within the Paschal mystery, dead with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ. They receive the Spirit that makes them God's adopted children, crying out, Abba, Father. And so they become the true adorers that the Father seeks. In the same way, whenever they eat the supper of the Lord, they proclaim his death until he comes. So, on the very day of Pentecost, on which the church was manifested to the world, those who received the word of Peter were baptized. They remained steadfast in the teaching of the apostles and in the communion of the breaking of bread, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. From that time onward, the church has never failed to come together to celebrate the Paschal Mystery by reading what was written about him in every part of Scripture, by celebrating the Eucharist in which the victory and triumph of his death are shown forth, and also by giving thanks to God for the inexpressible gift he has given in Christ Jesus to the praise of God's glory. That reading comes from the document on the liturgy from uh, the Second Vatican Council, Sacrosanctum Concilium, numbers five and six. And that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Today's show is brought to you by Carl and Kristen Friend and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. You'll get all kinds of cool extra content in the process. Join us over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle's at OutsideTheWalls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.